Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 8th episode of season 12. Before we get into it, let's break the ice as always. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know French was the official language of England after the Norman Conquest of 1066 by William the Conqueror of France until 1362 when English replaced it. From 1066 until 1362, French was mainly used by the nobility, whereas English was generally spoken by the lower classes. By 1362, the Statute of Pleading had named English as the official language of the courts. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. As you get older, three things happen. The first is your memory goes. And I can't remember the other two. That was said by Sir Norman Wisdom. Listener Kelly Price requested this case via the contact form at britishmurders.com. We're in the Partick area of Glasgow this week which is located 2.1 miles west of Glasgow city centre, 43 miles west of Edinburgh, and 345 miles northwest of London. Here are five quickfire facts about Partick. Number one, the settlement was originally known as Perdick. Per in Cumro Celtic means sweet fruit, and tech or deck translates as fair or beautiful. Perdick or Partick would therefore have been a place of fair fruit trees or orchards. Number two, in 1136, King David I of Scotland granted parts of the lands of Perdick to Bishop John. Christ, how do you say that? Achiao, I'm not, some bishop called John, who was the first bishop of the Diocese of Glasgow, which had been established in 1115. The gift also included the revenues of several churches, including those of Govan and Renfrew. Number three, the name of Partick comes from an earlier time when it was part of the Kingdom of Strathclyde, which was centred on Govan on the opposite side of the River Clyde. 
The local language was a form of Cymro Celtic related to modern day Welsh. Number four, Partick was famous for its ducks, which came in their droves to the River Kelvin, a tributary of the River Clyde, to feed on the grain from the mills. Glaswegians in times gone by descended on Partick on Saturdays typically to feed on roast duck and green peas washed down with cold punch. And number five, Partick is the home of Glasgow's smallest and most forgotten graveyard. It's called the Quaker's Graveyard. Tucked away in a tiny corner of Keith Street is the old Quaker's burial ground. They are the people who belong to the Religious Society of Friends. Nowadays there are no gravestones left and the site is fenced off behind iron railings. According to a 2015 estimate, Partick's population is 8,884. This story was almost four decades in the making, and if it weren't for the unbelievable work of a handful of people combined with rapid advancements in technology, it'd likely still remain a mystery to this day. In the UK, Parliament has not passed an act that provides a statute of limitations. There are time limits in which legal proceedings for civil cases must be brought, but not criminal cases such as murder. Basically, it doesn't matter how long ago you murdered someone, charges can be brought against you regardless of how much time has passed. That's a little preamble for what's to come with this week's case, but let's go back to the beginning and work chronologically as we always do. We begin eight years after the end of the Great War. It was in that year, 1926 if your maths or history isn't great, when a baby was welcomed into the world by her Catholic parents. She was named Mary Ann Murphy, and her story would go on to have many twists and turns, some of which were more positive than others. When researching Mary's background, I had to rely on a couple of extracts from a book called Diamonds and Pearls, released in November 2013 by a woman called Gina McGavin. Gina is one of Mary's children, but the book was written under the pen name Jennifer Ullman. It's described as a fictional story based on true events, but as far as I can tell, the facts about her mum are accurate. I'm only telling you this in case the facts aren't quite right, which is what one reviewer certainly thinks. The review reads, The author states that it is a work of fiction based on true events. She hasn't got her facts right. I find that bizarre given Gina is one of Mary's kids, but I can also see why it may be a fair comment. You'll see why as I continue to tell you about Mary's background. If the contents of Gina's book are to be believed, Mary's mum died when she was just five years old. Her dad, a staunch Catholic and merchant seaman by trade, was away for a great chunk of her childhood, which left her in the care of her two aunts. They essentially raised her. If you're a parent, you know how hard work kids can be. You might think that yours is uniquely naughty at times, but after speaking to other parents, you realise they're pretty much all the same, for the most part. In Mary's case, her rebellious nature led to her aunts becoming concerned that she was literally the spawn of the devil. She was certainly independent and didn't take well to authority, an attitude she took through her teenage years and beyond. Even so, she wasn't a bad person by any stretch. She had her flaws, like we all do, but she was good-natured at heart and has been described as being incredibly trusting, perhaps to a fault. Based on her childhood, she had a tough upbringing. Losing your mum at such a young age whilst having your dad constantly away working, it'd affect anyone. 
I got the impression that Mary often wore a mask, metaphorically speaking, to cover up any hurt or sadness she may have felt on the inside. She thoroughly enjoyed socialising, whether it be heading to the pub with her mates, going out partying, or just having a catch-up over a brew. Gina has gone on record stating that she believed her mum had a painted-on smile, which speaks volumes to how troubled she may have been without letting on. They say sadness is expressed through the eyes more than anything else. Perhaps those gave away how she truly felt to her family, including Gina. Born and raised in Glasgow's West End, Mary, who everyone knew as Wee Mary, had a total of 11 children. Mary's first six kids were had with a man 10 years her senior called Joe Mullen, whom Mary married in 1945 when she was around 19. Gina was one of those six kids for reference. Based on some simple calculations, Mary and Joe remained together for a decade after tying the knot. They never got divorced though, opting to remain legally married. By all accounts, it were Mary who left Joe and the kids. Gina was just two at the time and as a result was raised along with each of her five siblings by her father. The kids therefore were as close to the mum as they perhaps would have liked, especially young Gina. The childhood was made all the more difficult when Joe, the sole income earner, lost his job as a result of redundancies handed out by his employer, John Brown and Company. The well-established shipbuilding firm merged with other similar companies in 1968, so it's likely that many redundancies were made around that time. The company eventually ceased trading independently in 1986. With Joe now out of a job, he struggled to keep a roof over their head, which ultimately led to them losing the family home. Gina recalled having to sleep in a stairwell when she was 15, so you can only imagine how difficult of a life they all had. Mary, meanwhile, started a new life and went on to have another five kids with a man called Peter, who one source reported as being her first love. Given Mary were going by the name Mary McLaughlin during the main timeline of this story, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that were Peter's surname. Mary took it on, albeit unofficially, despite the pair not being married. In around early to mid-September 1984, Mary's husband Joe was laid to rest after passing away a short while earlier at the age of 68. At the time, Mary was living at Crathy Court, an apartment complex situated at number 57 Laurel Street in Partick. She appears to have lived there alone, with some articles claiming the flats are single-person dwellings. Wednesday, September 26, 1984, was a night like any other for Wee Mary. Ever the social butterfly, she spent the evening in the Hindland Bar, a pub on the corner of Hindland Street and Fordyce Street. Over the years, the pub has had a few name changes, you'd expect that, seeing as though this is in the 80s, this story. Such changes include The Spirit and Café Rio. Google Maps, updated in April 2021, suggests it's now known as Partick Duck Club. Another of Mary's daughters, Catherine Mullen, had joined her and her friends as they drank, shared stories and played dominoes. Opting to leave earlier than the rest of the women so she could catch a bus home, Catherine had no idea at the time that, after saying her goodbyes, she'd never see her mum alive again. Between 10.45 and 11pm, Mary was seen leaving the Hindland Bar in good spirits, as was her typical nature. Crathy Court is located half a mile away from the pub, as the crow flies, so Mary planned to walk home, as she always did. 
Her journey would have taken her south on Hindland Street, west on Dumbarton Road and north on Crow Road before finally arriving at Laurel Street. Now, as most of us do on a night out, Mary fancied some food on the way. Opting for a fish supper, she stopped at Armando's Fish and Chip Shop on Dumbarton Road, a place she visited regularly. I think it's called Blue Lagoon nowadays. Owned by an Italian family, Mary regularly bantered with the staff, with one of her recurring requests being for them to say Arrivederci, which means goodbye in Italian, when she left. She absolutely loved it when they did that, and the staff were always more than happy to oblige. Mary left with a smile on her face, according to those working in the shop at the time. Continuing her journey with the potato fritters and cigarettes she'd just purchased, that was back when you could buy cigs from pretty much anywhere, even a chipper, Mary made her way along Dumbarton Road. A local taxi driver spotted her walking along the road in her bare feet, having opted to carry her shoes instead of wearing them. She looked worse for wear, according to the driver, but what was more concerning was that she was in the company of a man significantly younger than her. Mary was known to pretty much everyone in the area, as I alluded to at the start, so the taxi driver recognised her, but it was an apparent stranger walking beside her. He looked to be in his early 20s, with Mary being 58. That witness testimony would later be reported to the police, and they would publicly issue a description of that man, but it sadly led to nothing. Martin Cullen, another of Mary's children, visited his mum once a week to see how she was and catch up on the previous week's goings-on. On October 2nd, six days after Mary was last seen with the strange young man, Martin, who was with his then-partner, became immediately concerned when his mum did not answer his knocks. Her hall light had also been left on, which was very out of character for Mary, plus there seemed to be a horrendous smell coming from inside the flat, a smell Martin had never experienced before and couldn't quite put his finger on. He managed to acquire a key from one of Mary's neighbours but was still unable to gain access to the flat. That left him with no other option than to try and force his way inside, which he did by kicking the door in. Martin's partner headed inside first and soon came running back out, screaming her head off. Inside, lying on her back on her bed, was Mary whose body was in a bad state of decomposition. Martin has since said, We found her lying on the bed. The sight of my mum's body when I found it frightened the life out of me and has tortured me ever since. Wrapped tightly around Mary's neck was the cord of her dressing gown. It had been wrapped three times around and tied with two knots. So tight was the cord that Martin at first didn't notice it. When the police arrived and secured the scene, it soon came to light that Mary's dress was on the wrong way round, and three days later, her black bra was found in the flat's back garden. Detective Superintendent Ian Wisher, who led the murder inquiry, has said the following in retrospect regarding the discovery of the bra. It wasn't 100% conclusive it was hers, but Mary's boyfriend at the time thought it might have been. We didn't even know if there was any significance to the find as there was no evidence of a sexual assault but it frustrated me then that the area wasn't searched completely. Policing back then was very different to modern methods. Mary's family's fears were confirmed after her post-mortem revealed her cause of death as being ligature strangulation. 
Given the level of decomposition, it would believe she may have been killed on the evening she was last seen alive leaving Armando's, although she may well have been killed the following day. It was impossible to say for sure. Gina recalled how her and her siblings were kept in the dark by the police as to what the full extent of her mum's injuries were. Aside from the cause of death, they weren't told anything. Gina said, The police said to me that there are details that only the police, my mother and the person who killed her will know. The killer must have been known to her because she wouldn't let a stranger into her house. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. That last statement was a belief shared by the detective's work in the case. The limited evidence available pointed to Mary having been killed by someone she knew. There was no sign of breaking and entering, so a robbery gone wrong could pretty much be ruled out. Her door was also locked, meaning the killer had opted to do so on the way out after murdering Mary. He therefore had a key, which pointed to him possibly being an acquaintance, or had he just taken it on the way out? How much of an impact that had on failing to catch Mary's killer is anyone's guess, but it likely played a huge part given the person responsible was never spoken to by the police during their initial investigation. His name was never on their suspect list. Detectives conducted interviews with around 6,000 people, many of whom provided statements, but insufficient leads came from them and the case remained unsolved before it was finally scaled back. It's worth pointing out that back in 1984, detectives didn't have the benefit of CCTV, DNA and social media to help them with the inquiry. It was a vastly different time, so it's no surprise that so many cases from decades ago either remain unsolved or went unsolved for a long period. Four years passed before the case was requested to be reviewed in 1988, a task left to Ian Wisher and his deputy. Despite their best efforts, no new information came to light, leaving Mary's murder a mystery. Fast forward 10 years to 1998, and that was the year in which Ian retired from the force after serving for 35 years. Mary's case haunted him. It was the only one he failed to solve. He said, It was a baffling case at the time and has remained so to this day. Mary Ann's murder is the only one I didn't solve. I was a senior investigating officer for around 25 years and worked on about 100 murders in total. The big question then and now was who would want to murder Wee Mary? In the 10 years after Ian's retirement, four separate cold case reviews were conducted in 1999, 2002, 2006 and 2008 in an attempt to obtain DNA samples from the evidence taken in on the back of Mary's murder all those decades ago. A fifth review was launched in 2014, which was the same year the Daily Record ran an unsolved series detailing Mary's murder. It was also the same year in which Gina was interviewed by the paper to discuss her book and how she hoped that her mum's killer would be brought to justice. She said, I hope that even if the killer isn't found in my lifetime, that someone will come forward in the future, maybe because of the book. It keeps my mum's memory alive. Finally, in 2019, and with great advances in DNA technology, Scottish Police Authority forensic scientist Joanne Cochrane and some of her colleagues were able to drastically increase the odds of finding a DNA sample belonging to Mary's killer. Prior to that, only 11 individual DNA markers could be looked at, 
but now, with the latest tech, they could look at 24. The UK standard is apparently 16. In a nutshell, it meant that even lower quality samples could potentially lead to identifying Mary's killer, which is precisely what happened. The key evidence came from the dressing gown cord which had been used to strangle Mary to death. Of the two knots tied, one had already been undone and examined with no results coming from it. The other knot remained tied, with the forensic team hoping it would have acted like a time capsule, effectively protecting the killer's DNA within that knot for 35 years. As the double knot was meticulously opened and photographed each step of the way, samples were taken and tested for DNA using the latest techniques. Mary's profile was, of course, present, as it had been on previous tests, but this time, a minor DNA profile was found that belonged to someone else. Running the profile through the DNA database, a match was found. It belonged to convicted serial sex offender Graham McGill. The chances of the minor profile not being his were 85,000 to 1. Subsequent tests found McGill's DNA on Mary's dress, a billion to 1 chance of not being his, a cigarette butt, also a billion to 1, and her bra, 320 to 1. There was also reportedly a semen sample recovered from her dress, but limited information is available regarding that. Joanne Cochran said of the findings, The SPA Forensic Services Cold Case Review Team carried out a full forensic review of this case, which identified a number of items for further DNA analysis using the very latest technologies available. This analysis resulted in finding DNA attributable to Graham McGill on several items, including a cigarette end, the ligature around Mary McLaughlin's neck, and on the dress she had been wearing. So, who exactly was Graham McGill? Contrary to everyone's belief, he didn't appear to have known Mary before the night he met and killed her. He wasn't a friend, a colleague, or an old acquaintance as far as I can tell. In 1981, three years before Mary's murder, a 19-year-old McGill stripped and raped a woman who appears to have been on duty working for a taxi company at the time. Her screams as McGill assaulted her were broadcast over the firm's cab radios, which led to several drivers rushing to her aid, although they were too late to prevent the woman from being raped. McGill ran off as the other drivers approached and successfully escaped back to his home at Springboig Road in Greenfield, a neighbourhood in the east end of Glasgow. He remained a free man until one evening, six months later, he was arrested after police officers caught him in the act of attempting to rape another girl, this time a 17-year-old. The then-apprentice welder was handed a six-year prison sentence after pleading guilty to the two charges he faced, which were rape and an assault with an attempt to rape. He was sent to HMP Edinburgh. McGill was out of prison on day release on September 26, 1984, the day he killed Mary, so by the time her body was discovered, he was back behind bars. The day release had come about because McGill was in the final weeks of his six-year sentence after having his time halved due to his exemplary behaviour whilst in prison. Talk about irony. He likely thought it was the perfect crime and figured he'd gotten away with it. Even that didn't stop him from committing further criminal offences against women. After entering into a relationship with Suzanne Russell, whom he'd marry in 1993, McGill reportedly threatened to kill not only Suzanne, but the children too. That threat seems to have come off the back of McGill admitting to Suzanne that he'd murdered someone years earlier. 
Suzanne said, He said he was round the pub for a drink and he said a woman wouldn't leave him alone and kept pestering him. He decided to go back to her flat with her. He said he murdered her. I didn't believe him. He threatened me and said if I ever told anyone, he would kill me. And if I ever reported it or tried to leave him, that's what would happen. McGill's reason for killing Mary stemmed from his wanting to know what it felt like to take another person's life. That's according to him anyway. He explicitly told Suzanne that during his confession to her. Suzanne went on to say, He said he strangled her. He used her tights and said he was shocked how long it took to actually murder her. He wasn't worried about it as he said she had no one and was more like a prostitute. In 1999, a year removed from Ian Wishett's retirement and the same year the first cold case review took place, McGill followed a 24-year-old woman home on March 27th after spending the evening at Fir Park Social Club in Motherwell. The woman had been with her boyfriend that night, but they'd had a row and she left early to walk home alone. As soon as he felt the coast was clear and the location was isolated enough, McGill grabbed her from behind by the neck and began repeatedly punching her. The woman did her best to fight back and scratched his face quite badly, something which later led to his capture due to McGill's DNA being under her fingernails. He was chased away after a passerby heard the woman screaming, but he was soon found and arrested. He denied the charge of assault with intent to rape, but a jury found him guilty at the High Court in Glasgow. Lord Nimmo Smith handed McGill a life sentence life sentence and insisted that he must serve at least four years before being eligible for parole. A psychiatrist produced a report on McGill at that time which essentially said he posed a significant risk to women. McGill was also placed on the sex offenders register then, something which had only been in existence for two years after the introduction of the Sex Offenders Act 1997. It was his arrest for that offence in 1999 which led to his DNA profile being placed on the national database. On December 4th, 2019, officers from Police Scotland arrested McGill at his home and explained that he was being charged with Mary's murder. The murder trial was delayed numerous times due to the COVID-19 pandemic which took over the world just four months after his arrest so he wouldn't face a jury until the spring of 2021. During the trial, the members of the jury were shown a seven-minute video of the interior of Mary's flat, taken on the day her body was found. Prosecutor Alex Prentice QC said, What we have is a murder with a sexual motivation. Her dress was on the wrong way round and her brow was found outside. The brutal attack on her indicates force. Further charges of threatening to kill Suzanne Russell and the kids, as well as stealing a set of keys from Mary's home, were initially brought, but Prosecutor Prentice withdrew them so that only the murder charge could be considered. McGill was found guilty on April 9th by the jury, who took just two hours to deliberate before returning to the court with their verdict. His sentencing came the following month. Handing McGill a life sentence with a minimum term of 14 years this time on May 18th, Judge Lord Burns said, 37 years after the death of Mary McLaughlin, you have been convicted of her murder. She was 58 when she died and you were 22. You are now 59. Her family has had to wait all that time in order to discover who was responsible for that act, knowing that whoever did it was probably at large in the community. They had never given up the hope that someday they would find out what had happened to her. 
The evidence showed that your chance encounter with Mary McLaughlin that night allowed you to take advantage of a vulnerable and lonely woman who was probably intoxicated. She was wholly unable to defend herself against any attack from someone like you. From the evidence of Suzanne Russell, it may be that you made a calculated decision to kill this woman. You continue to deny any responsibility for your actions. You, therefore, show no remorse for this murder. Gina, speaking after the verdict, said, McGill probably thought he was home and dry, but the fact is he has been held accountable and has not got away with it. However, 14 years for what he did is nothing really. A jury found him guilty. Life should mean life, and there should be no early release for him. Should he not die in prison? To this day, it is not known exactly how McGill came to be in contact with Mary that night in 1984. Perhaps he followed her out of the pub like he would do in the years following her murder to other women. He could have bumped into her at the chippy for all we know. Gina, for one, isn't convinced that McGill was a complete stranger or met her mum that night by chance. She recently said, I am still convinced he did not meet or follow my mother by chance. Why was he in Glasgow? Who was he with? Who did he meet? We've never had an answer to that. He randomly goes to Glasgow on his leave and chooses to murder my mother. I just don't believe it. I am convinced there are too many loose ends and unanswered questions. And that was the story of the murder of Mary McLaughlin. Thanks again, Kelly Price, for requesting that case. I would love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. This week's new reviews are as follows. Andy D left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Really interesting podcast. Short, sharp, and punchy, but doesn't cut out the salient parts of the story. Currently binging on the back catalogue with a suggested case to cover. Caroline Hazel left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads... Love the way you tell the stories with compassion and detail. I'm from London originally, but live in South Africa and found your podcast on my Spotify. Listen to and from work and thoroughly enjoy. Don't ever stop what you do. Thanks a mill. Andrew left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, As a fellow northerner, I find your accent an easy listen. Thank you for keeping me company whilst I go about my day. Please could you do the murder of Liz Sobo by Neil Crampton? Thank you. I've added that case to my list for you, Andrew. Finally, Jenny Kerr left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, My go-to podcast. Love how short and sweet it is, has all the info you need, and a joy to listen to it. 10 out of 10. Thank you, Andy, Caroline, Andrew, and Jenny for leaving those reviews. If anyone listening would like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do that on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. Please consider heading to patreon.com forward slash British Murders and signing up for a membership. If you choose my OBE or CBE tier, you'll gain early and ad-free access to all future episodes. You'll gain access to several bonus episodes, as well as to my British Murders weekly journal series. I also do Patreon-exclusive giveaways from time to time, and you'll get some thank you goodies for signing up. Hello and welcome to my Patreon members Vanessa Allen, Sharon and McCretch. Sorry it took so long to shout you out, Mandy. If you'd prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, you can do so by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash British Murders. Thank you to Malcolm for buying me five beers on there recently. The message left was, 
found this podcast a couple of weeks ago, now on Catch Up, presently listening to The Devil's Disciple. Please continue emailing case suggestions to contact at britishmurders.com or message me on social media. When I get round to covering your episode, you will get a shout out for your troubles. And that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.